Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. As we've been going through, we've seen this is a prophet who uh, is very upset. He's confused. He's afraid. He brings that to God. He unloads all of those feelings on God. And what we have in Habakkuk is God's response. In fact, twice God will answer Habakkuk's prayer. We saw that in chapter 1, that Habakkuk calls out to God in prayer and laments and shares how he's, he shares these really big feelings and God responds. Uh, last week, Jordan led us through the end of chapter 1 where Habakkuk gives his second prayer. And this time, God is going to respond. If you haven't had a chance, I'll invite you to uh, go online this week. You can download Jordan's sermon and you can listen to it um, on, our, on our sermon podcast. Uh, and this morning, in God's response to Habakkuk, he's going to answer with some promises. All right? So when, when we hear about promises, one of the things I think is important to understand about a promise is uh, we, don't believe, we don't believe every promise that we hear. An example that comes to mind is the weather forecast. Okay, so like suppose, suppose the weatherman said, perfect night tonight. You guys, it's the perfect trick-or-treating night. You guys are going to enjoy beautiful weather. Sunny, sunset 9 p.m., high of 24, 25 degrees. Perfect Halloween night. And if we believed him, and if we went out trick-or-treating, and if we got soaked, and if we froze to death, that would kind of be, we would partly be to blame for that. Right? And there'd be a couple of reasons for that. One, we would know that the weatherman isn't in, hasn't been truthful with us. Either he's totally incompetent or he's lying. He's not being truthful, right? The other reason, though, we wouldn't believe him is because we know that the weatherman doesn't have any power to deliver on that prediction. He can't change the weather. He can't, if he wants it to be sunny, he can't make that happen. Right? You know what I'm saying? And so we know, we know better than to treat a weather forecast like it's uh, a promise. We know better than that. But when God tells us about something that's going to happen, it's different, isn't it? When God tells us that something is going to happen, when God makes a promise, God's people know, we seem to instinctively know that we can act, we can take that seriously. Somehow we know that when God makes a promise and we... We act on that promise. It's not a mistake. You know? Um, how many people here are familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs? Are you familiar with that resource, Fox's Book of Martyrs? So, outside the Bible, it's probably one of the greatest resources we've got with stories of people who trusted in God's promise and they bet everything uh, on those promises. And if you were to look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the stories you'd come across is of a woman named Perpetua. And Perpetua lived in North Africa at the end of the second century, beginning of the third century, at a time when if you didn't, you know, if you didn't worship the Roman gods, you could be killed for sport. Like they'd take you to the middle of an arena, and in front of an audience, you would be attacked by animals and gladiators. And so Perpetua was a Christian, and she wouldn't worship the Roman gods, and so she went to jail for it. And she was 22 years old, she's a woman, she's a newlywed, she's also a new mother. In fact, she was nursing her baby, she's nursing her infant from prison, okay? She's breastfeeding her infant in 
prison, and she's a follower of Jesus. And in jail, she kept a record of her experience in her journal. And her journal survives uh, to this day. And some of her journal entries are about the visits that she had from her father. Her dad would come to jail and he'd say, like, don't you realize what you're doing to your mother and I? Renounce Jesus. Think about your baby. This baby's going to grow out without her mom. Renounce Jesus. And of course, of course she didn't. In her journal, Perpetua writes uh, one morning uh, about this vision that she had the night before. And in this vision, she's in the arena. And the arena is packed with people who are cheering for her to die. And in the sand in front of her, she's surrounded by animals. Bulls and bears and leopards and stuff. And there's some gladiators there. And in her vision, she fights them and she wins. And in her vision, all of a sudden, at the end, this, her, her trainer appears in the middle of the arena. And he's standing there and he's big and beautiful and he's holding this golden branch. And in her vision, he hands it to Perpetua. And all of a sudden, the audience starts busting out into hymns and singing psalms and stuff. And um, she receives the gold branch. She makes her way out to what she calls the gate of life. And when Perpetua woke up that morning, she wrote down her vision. And what she said was this. She said, I realized that it was not with wild animals that I would fight, but with the devil. Like her fight wasn't against the animals in the, in the arena. Her fight was against the devil. But I knew that I would win the victory. I knew that I would win the victory. For her, this vision was like a... She believed that this vision was from God. For her, it was like a promise. She received this vision like a promise from God. And so that day, uh, after she finishes writing her journal entry, she gets up and she's led out into the arena with some other Christians. And it's just like in her vision. And she's in the middle of the arena. The stands are packed with people cheering for her to die. She's surrounded by animals. She's surrounded by gladiators. And within a moment, the animals and the gladiators just tear her apart and she's killed. And a gladiator sticks a sword through her neck. And she's dead. And and some of us, we hear that story and we're like, that doesn't sound like a victory. That doesn't doesn't sound like a victory. Some people would say that. Some people would be like, "How how is that a victory? And we have a couple of ways we might process a story like what we heard uh, with Perpetual. When we hear things like this happening to Christians, we have a couple of choices. One choice is to say, this is just a huge waste. Just a colossal tragedy. She threw away her life. What a fool. The other way to process it, though, it seems to me, is that maybe we don't have the full picture right now. Maybe there's something else going on behind the scenes. Maybe Perpetua is an example of faith that trusts in a promise that will be fulfilled sometime in the future. Maybe she's an example of faith in a promise. And I think after we read Habakkuk today, we're going to see that uh, it's the latter. I think what, what Perpetua knew and what Habakkuk knows uh, after today, after God's response to him, is, is this. And this is kind of my thesis for the morning, right? A promise is only as sure as the one who makes it is reliable. All right? A promise, any promise, is only as sure as the person who makes it is reliable. 
So if, just we, we need to see that this morning. So let's come with me into Habakkuk chapter 2, if you would. And uh, what we're going to see is that God will respond to Habakkuk's second set of prayers here with some promises. There's three promises, actually. I'll just tell you what they are. And I'm giving them in the reverse order that they appear in the passage. The first is that evil will come back on those who do it. The second is that the righteous will live by faith. And the third is that the mystery will be made known. Okay, the mystery, all the mystery will be revealed. So let's begin with the first promise, which is that evil will come back on those who do it. So in this section, towards the end of, of, of our morning's passage, there is this reversal coming. The Chaldeans, who God has raised up and he's sending as a judgment, uh, they think that they are unstoppable. They can do whatever they want, and they're wrong. And it turns out that they are condemned. And you know, in Scripture, one of the ways that um, a prophet announces judgment on a group is by saying, by announcing woe, like woe to you because of this. And, uh, and, and what woe means is like, there is no future for you. There is no hope in this course of action. Like, you, the worst place you want to be is the place that you are. That's what woe means. And so now Habakkuk is saying, woe to the Chaldeans. In verse 6, uh, sorry, verse, verse 5, we've got all sorts of reasons why. There's, there's wine and there's arrogance and there's greed. God says they never have enough. As they go out conquering and colonizing and imposing their will over other nations, God says that's not okay and they never have enough. Verse 6, these Chaldeans have been going around and they've been scoffing at other nations. Well, now they're the ones who are going to be scoffed at. Now those nations are going to announce, woe to you. Verse 7, they had been robbing these, these nations and stuff. And, and, and uh, the text refers to them as, as debtors. So these debtors are now going to rise up against you. They're going to, they want to take back what you took from them. They want to make you tremble. And, and as they do, you will be spoiled for them. You stole their stuff, they're going to take it back from you. In verse 8, you robbed and you plundered others. Now it's you who's going to be plundered. He talks about how you did violence to the people and to the land and to the cities. And God saw all of that. He didn't miss any of it. And he's going to get, he, he, that evil is going to come back now on the Chaldeans. Because those are his people. And it's his land. And those are his cities. And God's promise here in this section is all the evil that you did, that's all going to come back on you. That evil is going to come back on those who, who did it. That's the first promise. The second promise comes in the next section, um, which is kind of the middle section, I guess. Verse 4. It's that the righteous will live. The second promise is the righteous will live. This, in this verse here, God is contrasting two kinds of people. And if this is a familiar uh, idea, uh, you'll see why in just a minute. But God compares the arrogant, the, the vain, the puffed up, with the righteous. And I think it's interesting that in God's mind, the opposite of a puffed up, arrogant Chaldean isn't a humble person who always does the right thing. In God's mind, the opposite of a Chaldean is a person who... Uh, shall live by faith. A person who is righteous, not by the things that they've done, but by faith. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, 
It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so we should ask, who are the righteous? Who is, who is he talking about? Is he just talking about the Judeans here? Well, it's everyone who lives on account of their faith. And I could imagine that some of the first people who heard this, they might be going, okay, that's, that's rich. The, the righteous will live. Eh? The righteous will live. It sure doesn't seem like the righteous will live. It seems like the righteous will be wiped out by Chaldeans. That's what it seems like is going to happen to the righteous. How can you say that the righteous will live? What do you mean by that? How can you, how can you promise us that, God? And, and this promise is, is really good news because contrary to how things look for, for Judah, contrary to how it looks for the Chaldeans, the righteous will live. They will get the victory over the Chaldeans. And it's not going to be because of their, their might. It's not going to be because, because they're super impressive or super clever or something like that. It's because they have faith in a promise that God has made to them. That's how they will live. They will live by faith in God's promise. And to the degree that they trust that promise, they will live. That's what, that's what he means by the righteous will live by faith. And if that's familiar, it's because this is an idea that comes out all over the New Testament. Okay? This is something that the Apostle Paul gave his life to explaining. And so when he writes the New Testament, for example, in the letter to the Galatians... Uh, he writes to the Galatians that uh, you need to, you, you, I want you to take, your, take that saving faith you've got, because everybody's got saving faith in something, and I want you to take that saving faith off yourself and off your own abilities and put it onto Jesus, because the only way to be right with God is not by our works, it's not by the good things that we've done, it's not by the bad things that we haven't done, it's by, but it's by faith. And that's his message to the Galatians. And you might go, well, where did he hear, where did he get that idea? He got it from Habakkuk. And so when he writes to the Galatians, Paul says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so without Habakkuk, there is no good news for the Galatians. And without Habakkuk, there's no good news for the Romans either. Because in Rome, the Christians, and in fact, many of the people are divided because they don't know what to do with Jesus. For some of them, the way of Jesus seems like foolishness. Okay? To some of them, it seems like it's just too hard. Some of the people in Rome think that the way of Jesus, it's just, it's just one more religion. What's the point? And Paul's message is, no, no, no. This is not a religion. This is God's power. The gospel is the power of God, which we share in, we experience by faith. And where did he get that idea? Habakkuk. He gets it from Habakkuk. And that's why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul relies on Habakkuk to help him defend his message to the Romans and to the Galatians and the rest of the New Testament, that the, that the righteous shall live by faith. That's God's promise to us. The righteous shall live, and it's going to be because of their faith, on account of our faith. So that's the second promise. The third promise is here, that what's hidden will be revealed, 
And um, even though this appears first in the text, I'm sharing it third because I think it's the one that explains all the others. Okay? So at the beginning of our passage, in in verse 1, Habakkuk has made a choice after he's given his prayer. Okay? After he's given his second prayer. He's He's made this choice now to stand and wait and watch for God's response. He says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And I just think that's such a great posture for us as people of faith. That's such a great place for us to be when we don't know what's going on. When we're hurt and confused and upset about what's going on, to be able to take this place where we're going to take our place on the watch post and we're going to see and wait for what he will say to us. You know, when we're done talking, when we're done lamenting, when we're done grieving and, and unloading our complaint on God, the proper, the thing for us to do next is to wait. To wait and to listen for what he's going to say. And here's God's promise to him. Here's God's response. He says in verse 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision. So this vision, I'm about to give you a vision. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. This vision will surely come. It will not delay, God says. Now do you hear, when when we read that, do you hear the promise embedded in that text? It's God saying to Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a vision. I'm going to give you some insight and some perspective into what's going on. I'm going to give you like a a revelation. And I want you to write it down so that once it's read, you can run with it. Okay? You can go out and you can live and, and act and run according to it. That vision isn't here yet. It's almost here. But it's not going to take any longer than it absolutely has to. I want you to wait for it. That's, what, that's God's vision, that's, or that's God's promise to Habakkuk. This plan, this story, this vision, this revelation is going, it's, it's not clear right now, but it will be. Someday it's going to be revealed. That's such a helpful promise that is so important for us. Okay? I really hope that we will we'll let that hit us in the imagination. That this, that what is now a mystery will someday be made clear. And the reason I think that that's so helpful is because most of us know what it's like to have had a promise broken. How many people know what that's like? You've had a, a promise broken in your life and it affected you, like it really hurts. We know what that's like. We know how that feels. We've been lied to. We've been, you know, some of us cheated on. We've been betrayed. We've been face to face with with divorce and with with favoritism. All kinds of things. And and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't even only happen like out there in the world. It's something that affects us. It happens here in the church among God's people that we break, that we have had promises broken to us and it really messed us up. One of the wounds, one of the, the toughest wounds that I, I still carry with me to this day uh, happened to me in a church context. Um, it was at the hands of a, of a mentor who I, I love and I respect. But as a young man, this guy, this, he was a pastor. He pulled me aside 
And um, we were part of a, of a growing, thriving, exciting, lively church. And he pulled me aside at a young, as I was a young man, and he asked me if I, would be, if I would like to succeed him as the next pastor in a couple of years when he moved on to a bigger church. A couple of years from now, could you see yourself being the pastor? Because I want to hand, hand things off to you. And I was honored, and I was humbled, and I was excited, and I was like, of course, like, I am all in on, on this plan. This became, became like this ongoing secret plan, this secret conversation between the two of us and um, that nobody else knew. But I was so honored, so humbled, so excited. And, um, and it changed how I relate to him and how I relate to the church and how I relate to the community and the neighborhood. And I worked so hard to prove myself. And I took on this sort of, this different sort of responsibility for the, for the community, for that, for that church. I gave so much of my time and so much of my life over those years. And in the meantime, job offers came along from other churches. And I said no to them because, this, because we had a plan. I had a promise. And a couple of years turned into three. And then four. And then five. And, and, and more and more. And eventually I could see it, uh, it wasn't going to happen. And I was crushed by that. And what made it harder was I couldn't talk to anybody about it. And now I know a couple of things at this age, as I, as I look back, there's a couple of things that I realized happened there. On one hand, uh, I know he wasn't being truthful. He, he wasn't willing to let go of the role. I, I know that now. On the other hand, he shouldn't have promised me that because he actually doesn't have the power. It's not something that's within his power to, to promise me. And so, and, and if I were a wiser man at the time, I think that I would have realized that. I would have thanked him for the compliment, but I would not have rearranged my life uh, over this promise. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not even the last time that that would happen to me. And even though it hurt, even though it was costly in my life, and even though these broken promises, they hurt us, and it hurt me, I have no doubt that it was God's will. I have no doubt for a second that this was God's will for me to, to not take that role. I, I, I am 100% certain that, that God's no in that situation was, was absolutely part of his plan, part of my story, and for my good. For so many reasons that I didn't understand at the time, it was God's will, and it was good for me. It makes a lot of sense now. And some of you know what that's like. And one of the reasons why you stick with Jesus, one of the reasons why you still get up and you march into the arena day after day is because you know that even if people break their promises, even if God's people break their promises to you, you know that God never will. You know God never will. And even if, some t- even if none of this makes sense to us right now, right now, if all the, even if all that we've got is the hurt, we have the benefit of God's promise to Habakkuk, which is that someday... All these painful stories. Someday all these mysteries, all these visions, it'll all make sense. That the vision awaits. It it awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it, God says. It will surely come. It will not delay. It'll be revealed. 
It's going to be made clear. What's unclear now will become, will be revealed someday. Yes, right now it's a mystery, but it won't always be. So wait for it. God says, wait for it. And, and I could imagine if some of us were like, huh, wait for it. That's God's answer. That's what I'm supposed to hold on to. Wait for it. And, and it, maybe it feels like a cop-out for, for God to respond to your prayer with, wait for it. It's coming. The explanation, the mystery will be revealed. Wait for it. That is not a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. God is not like the other people in your life. God's promise isn't like their promises. God is reliable. In fact, this isn't the last time that God was going to tell his prophet to write down a vision. Habakkuk is one, but another one is John the Apostle. And he came along many centuries later. And what Habakkuk saw only a, a little piece of, what Habakkuk got only a little glimpse of, the Apostle John saw fully, and at the end of our Bibles, he wrote it down, and we have it in the book of Revelation. We don't have to wait for it. We don't have to wait for that explanation. We have that vision. We have that revelation now, so that we can make sense of these things. And in fact, I'm going to invite you to come with me to Revelation 21. In your Bible, if, you, if you've got your Bible there, go ahead and come with me to Revelation 21. And um, this is this beautiful passage that that reveals in full what Habakkuk only had a tiny little piece of. Okay? In Revelation, the curtain is pulled back, and here is what's coming for God's people. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? Just like Habakkuk, John is going to write these things down because these words are trustworthy and true. God has made some promises for us in this passage. And as we hear those, we should ask, does God intend to keep those promises? Like, is he lying or is he exaggerating? Is he overstating things? God doesn't lie. He doesn't change. God will keep his promise. Okay, he's not lying. And, and does God have the power? To, can God keep these promises? Or could it happen someday that God says, Yeah, guys, I'm really sorry. I did my best. I just, I just couldn't do it. Absolutely not. God is sovereign and almighty. God is actually the only one in all the universe who can keep all of his promises all the time. And a Christian is a person who believes him. 
A Christian is a person who believes that he's trustworthy and true because God has made us all kinds of promises. Like, all who believe, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That he's promised us that in all things, God works for good for those who love him. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Jesus promises, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And we could go on and on. These are God's promises, and Scripture is full of them. And when all the stories are told, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus will be all in all. Every tear wiped away. No more death. No more disease. Every sin and every sinner, every Chaldean will be dealt with. And heaven and earth will come together. And Jesus and his, his bride, the church, will come together. And until then, he says, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. And so, so I have no doubt, and I think we can have no doubt, that ultimately we will win the victory. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.